This morning I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given his grace according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity and faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome in Highlands. My name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And if you're visiting with us, it's a delight to have you here. Um, We hope that uh, this is a place where you can learn and grow and get connected, start forming roots that, uh, that build relationships with others, and that ultimately you grow into the full measure of who God created you to be. I love the vision of Highland to the work to restore Highland, Abilene, and the world as we join with God in partnership of the restoration of all things. And one of my favorite things about this is the mutual relationship that comes from our ministry partners around the world, in Thailand, in Lebanon, and as you saw today, Brazil. The Gonsalveses have been with us this week, and they have been such a joy. They came and spoke with our staff and encouraged us with stories of what God is doing in Brazil and, and shared some of the wisdom that they have about ministry with us. I think so often uh, churches tend to think of, of missionaries and mission work as this kind of one-way street where we're going to pour resources down one direction and we expect that there's work and fruit that happens down in that route. But what has happened at Highland is this kind of mutual um, encouragement that occurs. When the Gasalvises come back and they share with us wisdom and, and stories of God's work, we learn from them as we travel and send our students to Brazil for a camp so that they can grow and see what, what the kingdom looks like in E2. We learn from them. Mark and Ali Kaiser, who we work with with CL. It's a ministry that helps uh, those who have been in prison and on the streets kind of come and find a place where they can work, find uh, job security and training. They work at a cafe and then they, a cafella, and, and, and then they go out in, into the world. And we're learning about what, what, ha- what is happening in E2 and how we can apply that here in Abilene. It's not just a one-way street. The work and the kingdom of God always blesses in every direction. And we get to be the recipients of that that joy. And so it's a delight to have the Gonsalveses here. Thank you for being with us. Uh, I want us to turn to our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and pull that out, your cell phone, whatever, we don't care. Uh, We're going to be working through that today uh, in our sermon. But before we do that, I want us to, to stop and pray. Father God, for the rain that we received last night and as it continues to to drizzle this morning, we give you praise. For the goodness of your love that always provides, always protects, always gives hope, always endures. And Father, for the realization of the grace that you've given us, the way that we have been changed and transformed closer to the image of your Son, we cannot help but praise your name for all the good and the things that you've done. 
And Father, I, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with power through your spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and I pray that all of us being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And Father, to that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching that I might speak your love your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. All right, so I want to talk about what it means to be an elder today. And if, if you missed last week, I want you to go back and try to listen or watch that sermon because that's going to connect pretty closely with what we're talking about today. They're kind of a two-part series, and then we're moving on after this. But we're in a season where we are uh, looking to nominate new leaders in this church. And so you're going to hear more about this in the, in the coming weeks and months as this process goes on. This is something we do every three or four years as we um, think about who God is calling to be our leaders. And so this is not the end of that conversation. There's going to be a, a Bible uh, class in, a, in, a, in about a month or so, and there's going to be more information that's going to be given to you. But, but today we're going to kind of look at one other text, Ephesians chapter 4, and what does that mean about being an elder? And in, in the New Testament, I think elder and pastor kind of have, uh, they're synonyms. I think they're kind of the same thing. And I realize as I'm preaching today, I have to admit I'm not an elder. And I haven't experienced that in, in its fullness. I haven't ever walked like that. And so I don't fully understand. But I have had the opportunity to deserve, observe pretty closely a lot of different elders. And so today, if I've done my job well, as we reflect on this, being an elder is going to sound both incredibly hard and the most natural thing in the world. If I've done my job well, being an elder is going to sound incredibly difficult and natural. It's kind of like, I think three weeks ago I told you that um, on my study break, one of the things I decided to do was learn how to swim because the best thing that you could call me in the water is not swimming, it's flailing. And so I, I, I went to the pool and I began to, to, to ex experience and explore and, and, and try to figure this out. I was having very little success. I did what any nerd does. I begin to research, so I go on YouTube to figure this out. And I get enough that I can get from one side and back. And I realize, okay, now is the point where I am going to need a lot more help. And so I've got a coach now to help me learn how to swim. And I go to the coach and, and she says to me, okay, what we're going to do just to kind of see where you're at is have you jump in the water and you do, you do 100 yards and I'll just watch you and we'll see how it goes. Immediately in my head, my first thought is, there's no way I'm doing 100 yards. <laughs> and so I jump in the water and I swim from one side to the other and, and that's 25 yards at the pool I was in. And, and she looks at me and she just says, okay, stop, that's enough. <laughs> we're good. She says, there's, there's five things that you need to do to swim well freestyle, front crawl. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to kick your legs, you have to make your arms move through the water, you have to enter the arm, hands into the water well, you have to breathe, and you have to keep your core tight. There's five things that you need to learn. You're doing all five of them wrong. <laughs> and so, 
We break them down. Like we spend the next hour and she says, okay, let's work on your kick. And, and, and I've gotten to the point now where my kick no longer propels me backwards, which is a huge improvement. I'm not going forwards yet, but at least I'm not wasting energy. Uh, and I work on different drills that help me isolate these five things. And so she says to me, all right, you've got all five down. You've kind of figured this out. Now swim. Do you know how hard it is to do these five things at once at the same time? She's given me these paddles that I put on my hands so that if I hit the water and it slaps, if my hand goes in wrong or it goes in smooth. So I'm learning how to put my hands in the water. I'm learning how to pull my arm back at the right spot. I'm learning to, to, to put my face in the water and make my brain believe that I'm not drowning myself when I push air out. And so I jump in the water. And I can do like two out of the five right. Maybe. But getting the five right is impossible. This is hard. But then I look over into the lane next to me and there is someone who is just gliding through the water. It's like she's flying through the water. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is where we ended last week, Paul begins by saying, if you desire to do eldering, if you desire to be an elder, it's a, it's a noble thing. And I want to connect that to social media. And you might not get it at first, but just hang with me because I'm going to go there. There's been this huge revolution that's been happening in the last three years of, of social media. Now, you may remember when Facebook began and you heard about it the first time. I was actually working here in Abilene. I was working for ACU. And someone did a presentation about this new thing called Facebook. And I thought, yeah, that'll never take off. I was wrong. Um, and, and so Facebook kind of begins to dominate the social media world, uh, predominantly by being the best and then buying any other competitor. But in the last three years, there's this new kind of startup that's, that's risen to the top called TikTok. And, and most, I'm, I'm going to say most young people, if you're under 20, you may not even know what Facebook is because TikTok and YouTube are where you go for kind of your social media experience. Here's the difference between the two. And this is why that billion dollar Facebook company is actually kind of terrified. Facebook wants to show you what you like through a complicated al algorithm. They want to show you um, what, what they want you to see in your feed. And the way that they can do that is that you tell them. You click like or care or love or you comment. And that shows interest. And so Facebook can use some analysis to say, okay, every time there's the word baby, you tend to comment about it and you hit the love button. So we're going to show you more newsfeed items that have the word baby in it, which is kind of, it was revolutionary at the time. It gives you what you want to see. TikTok does it a little bit differently. Because TikTok is all video. It doesn't rely on you liking or commenting or even subscribing. TikTok observes, some people think, when your eyes are looking at the screen and when they're not. Because if they're looking at the screen, then you're interested. Some even say it's doing an analysis of if your pupils are dilating. Because that's kind of an un uncontrollable response of interest. And then if you watch a little clip once or twice or three times, that shows even more interest. And if you flip it away and move on, that shows lack of interest. Here's the difference. Facebook shows you what you think you should like. But TikTok shows you what you actually like. 
And so I asked my students one day, I, I teach a class at ACU, a freshman Bible class, and I asked them, hey, what's, what's on your TikTok feed? What do you see? And the answers were as diverse as there was as many people in the room. One of my students says, well, it shows a lot of hunting videos, hog hunting videos. I had no idea there were even hog hunting videos on TikTok, but that's what this guy sees. Somebody else said, well, it's all about makeup and people applying makeup. That's what they see. Others said, well, it's mostly just like kind of pratfalls and people hurting themselves. That's really funny. I like that. And, and, and then so eventually somebody said, you know, Hughes, Professor Hughes, what's on your TikTok? And I, and I was going to be honest with them. I said, well, it's mostly ASMR woodworking videos. And I had no idea. Like, I thought this thing is broken. But it's apparently what I really like is to watch somebody very gently and quietly shave wood until two pieces fit together. I don't know why that's what I like, but that's what I like. Maybe it's just like the, the control of it all. The peace of that moment. Maybe that's what I need right now. I'm, I'm sure there's some psychologists out there that I've revealed way too much information. But um, he could have chose, Paul could have chosen a million different words. To desire to be an elder is an easy thing or a rewarding thing. He chose a noble thing. And here's where this applies to social media. I think in our world, we have a lot of leaders that are Facebook leaders. They know what they ought to like, and they know what they ought to do, and they know how to project that image. And they kind of like the feeling of being important, and they kind of like the feeling of, of being upfront, and they kind of like the feeling of having power to make decisions, and they, they like that they're respected and people offer them, uh, they get invited to parties, and they, they kind of like that others, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, they kind of step back and let them take the lead. They like that. That feels good. And then there's TikTok leaders. They just love to be a shepherd. It's not what they think they ought to do. It's what they do. It's who they are. And so I think as we're thinking about what does it mean to desire to become an elder, well, my prayer for Highland is that we have Highland elders that look a lot more like TikTok leaders than Facebook leaders. Because I need to address a crisis. There is a crisis that's happening in our culture. And it's a distinct and growing sense of pulling back. People are way less interested in extending hospitality to others than we have before. And that's in all sorts of means. Because you've got to make sure the people around you are with you. You got to make sure that they're safe and that they agree with you and that you have the same perspective on all things. There's been this winnowing of friendship that's happening in America. And to invest in the only things, to invest only in the things that matter most to you. In fact, there was a study that just came out out of Harvard. The greatest predictor of economic upward mobility is economic connectedness. Now, it used to be going to college. It used to be the strategy would be if we can get um, people that come from underprivileged backgrounds and we can get them in college, that will be the step that they need on the ladder so that they can get a good job and have upward mobility. 
But they have found now that that's not necessarily the case. That a greater indicator of, of upward economic mobility is, is when you live around people that are different than you. You live around people that know things that you don't. In fact, the study would go to show there was one, um, one deep level of a footnote that I read that showed that if you live next to someone that had more money than you, and they had children, and your age, that is the greatest predictor of all that you will be more successful in an economic sense. And the writer goes on to so because you went over to their house, and you played in their house, and you learned how they live, and you learned the differences between your life and their life. And in one sense, it's true because you learn all the things that you don't do, like maybe their, their family had better nutrition or better sleep habits or better discipline, or maybe their family was able to have, uh, pay their bills on a monthly time so they didn't lose power. But the other thing that happened, and the researcher just kind of points to this, is that sometimes you thought you were just being invited over to that house because you were friends, but actually what that family was doing was inviting you over to their house to feed you. One of our elders, Richard Beck, said a line that has stayed in my head ever since I heard it, and it, it is living rent-free, and I have no problem with it. One of the measures of success for our church is unlikely relationships. How many unlikely relationships have you formed in the last five years here? Somebody that's nothing like you. Somebody that comes from a very different background than you. Somebody that has a very different understanding of the world than you. That's one of the measures of success for us here. And I wonder how that works in a city like Abilene. Or in our education system. Or in our neighborhoods. There is a crisis in our culture right now that says, I must pull back not extend hospitality or grace. It's the only way I can protect myself. But I think the way of Jesus points a different way. It tells a different story. So I want to talk for a minute about how to become an elder. And the easiest way to become an elder is just to, to do it already. And I want to pull us back to something Randy said in a sermon three or four weeks ago. He was talking about the, the way of the life of the Spirit and the way of death. And he says you can walk in the Spirit. Each time you take a step towards the Spirit, it makes that road just that much easier. That if you want to become an elder, even if you have in your mind kind of that Facebook vision of the one that gets to be seen, just do the work and you'll get there, but you're not going to be what you think it is. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the, in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to maintain the unity uh, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And I think every time a leader evokes a conversation about unity, so often what we think is going to happen is, okay, now get behind me and my agenda. And if you're hearing that today, you're hearing the wrong thing. This is not about any leadership kind of get behind that issue. I mean, I'm Gen X. I don't even have any sense of leadership. 
And Paul doesn't either because what he wants to do is use unity as a means to talk about the diversity of the Spirit. Because the next thing he says in Ephesians 4 is, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Because of the unity that we have in Christ, we are each given a diversity of gifts. The gifts that were gave that some would be apostles, some are prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until all of us come together to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing there? He wants to begin with unity, that we share the same Lord and the same baptism and the same Word of God, and because we share that same gift of the Spirit, we have been given a diversity of gifts. As many as there are people in here, God has given gifts to us, but all of those gifts work together to build the sinews of the body of Christ, to build the root system to support the cathedral of Christ, to bring us to maturity, to the fullness, the full stature of Christ. But you can't hold back. It was my first year in campus ministry, my first year in ministry at all. And I wanted to gather some of the guys together and have like a, a time for them to get to know each other because the guys in our ministry just weren't connected to each other. They weren't friends. And so I said, hey guys, we're going to make some pizzas together. I know some of you don't really cook, uh, but we're going to come together. We're going to make some pizzas. We're just going to hang out. And so I gave each of them a task to bring. One of them was to bring, you know, tomato sauce and another was to bring the meat and another was to bring the cheese and another guy was supposed to bring the, the crust, the, 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 yeah, the crust, the bread. And, um, and we were just going to build these pieces together, hang out and talk, right? And, and the guy that, that built, was supposed to bring the crust, he didn't show up. And so we're all eating there, like eating pizza in our hands like barbarians. That's not true. We used bowls. But we missed that guy. We needed him. Or more seriously, it's the story of my brother. When my brother was like, 36 years old, his immune system decided that his pancreas was a threat. And his body began to attack his body, and his immune system killed his pancreas. And now he's a type 1 diabetic because his body can no longer produce insulin. Part of the body killed an organ in his body. What does it look like if a church holds back? What does it look like if a church intentionally or unintentionally kills a part of the body? Well, if we kill evangelism, then we're gone in like a generation and a half. And when you think of evangelism, you probably think of like someone that goes out on the street and doing conversions, maybe with a bullhorn. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the conversations that you have with your children over the dinner table. I'm talking about the moments where you get to choose to be a person of character or not in front of others, and because you choose to do it, they realize that what you said about Jesus is true. That's evangelism. If we kill our prophets, then we have no clear sense of what God is doing in our world. If we kill our apostles, if there's no apostles, then we have no one that's looking out on the horizon, and we get swept away by the next big thing. If we lose our teachers, then our congregation gets exhausted by chasing every random thought and idea. And if we don't have pastors, which in my opinion is the best correlation to what we have here as elders, we die from a death of a thousand cuts because there's no one here to heal our body. 
to love our body, to care for our body. If you have the gift of eldering, we need you to start exercising that gift. And for an elder, it all comes down to character. This is not a job where your skill set matters more than your person because it is difficult. Paul didn't say if you desire to be an elder, you have an easy road. He called it noble. And the American view of character is either you're good or you're evil. And you can easily tell the difference because some of them wear white hats or black hats or my, my news feed tells me who's good and bad. But the reality we know in the church is it's not that simple. The view of those that are committed to the restoration of all things is redemption. And we believe that the message of Jesus can transform and renew and redeem and restore those whom it seems like the world has abandoned. So we need good elders. Elders that will be an example. That do as they do, not as they say. I think Jesus would tell us that a good shepherd goes before the sheep when they lead us. We need elders that are trustworthy, that are consistent, have a consistent and caring voice, who are going to be before you if you're at the top of the mountain or the bottom of the valley. It does not matter. They are for you. One of my elders said within the first three weeks of me, come, of me coming to Abilene, he said, if you see me coming for you, know that I am coming to support you. I've held that in my heart for three years. That is living rent-free in my heart because I believe them. They are for us. Even if we're right or if we're wrong or somewhere in between, they are trustworthy. We need others who are committed, that they're grounded in the present. Jesus would say, the hired hand will run when times get tough. We need elders who have vision. They have a clear view of the future and they know how to get there. Paul moves from unity to giftedness back to unity. And the success and failure of this church in every church, of your ability to parent and neighbor well, our ability to love those who seem loveless, to care for those that seem forgotten, to welcome the stranger, depends on one thing. Are we following close? Are we following closely in the steps of the Good Shepherd? of Jesus. It's, it's not the most important thing. It's the only thing that will determine the life and death, success and failure of our church and every church on this planet. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. Our, our prayer team is available for you. If, you. if you have something on your heart you need to, someone to talk to, our elders would love to pray for you, but also our prayer team. Uh, they're going to be up here at the front at the end of the service. You can find them. And if it's a prayer here or a conversation or maybe it's a cup of coffee on Tuesday afternoon, uh, they want to be available for you. Uh, please stand for our benediction. Over, over the next few weeks and months, 
we're going to be discerning who are our leaders, who are those whom God has called. But I want to set a different trajectory in some of your hearts. Some of you have been gifted to be a pastor. And you know how it feels when you walk with somebody through pain. And you know how it feels when, you're, when, it, when you've been trustworthy. You know how it feels when you've been dedicated and you're consistent with somebody. And it feels like the call of God. Don't wait till a church nominates you. Don't wait till the church recognizes you and, and they give you a title called elder. Start doing it now. Start doing it today. So this week, may you exercise your gifts to the fullness of which the Spirit has given you. And may the gifts as you serve this church and this city and this world partner with the restoration of God of all things. Go in peace.